So we are in the book of Colossians, and we are con- continuing on in Colossians. And uh, I want to thank Pastor Matt Carnes this last week for, for bringing God's word. He did a wonderful job, and, and he continued on focusing on what we've been focusing on, which is the centrality of Christ, his sufficiency in all things. And this is the theme of Colossians. And so before we jump in, I just want to tell you that we're going to continue in Colossians this next week, but we're, we're going to start a new series. And, and the book shifts. It's very similar to the book of Ephesians, but the, the theme of the book shifts. And so we're going to be doing a series starting in uh, chapter 3, and it's going to go through the rest of the book, and we're going to call the series Out with the Old and In with the New. And so it's going to be a series that's going to look at our life personally and the, the inward work of transformation and sanctification in our life and, and how God is working in us to mature us and to grow us in our faith. And so starting next Sunday, we will begin in chapter 3 of Colossians. And so this morning's message, I'm titling this message, Have, have You Learned Your Lesson? Have You Learned Your Lesson? That's the title of this message here this morning in Colossians. Have you learned your lesson. And so I have had on my heart since the beginning of all of this, this one idea that's been on, on my mind and on my heart is that I don't want to miss the lesson that God wants to teach me during this time. I spoke with our leaders through a Zoom call this last Sunday, and that's what was really on my heart. It's continued to rest heavy on, our, on my heart is that I personally don't want to miss the lesson that God wants to teach me during this time. I don't want us as a church to miss the lesson that he wants us corporately to learn as a congregation. What is God wanting to say? And, and I, I, you know, I think that it's not very often when you evaluate life and you look at history, it's not very often that we experience something like what we're experiencing right, right now, where the entire world is swept up into this pandemic. And so in a, in a situation like this, in a moment like this, we would be foolish if we would not think deeply and evaluate where we are. And God, what do you want to teach me? What is the lesson? And so I want us to think about that this morning by way of introduction. And when we get, before we get back into the text, have, have you ever had a lesson your parents tried to teach you when you were growing up? I know I try to teach my kids lots of lessons. And if you're a parent here today, you try to teach your kids lessons. But I don't want you, if you're a parent... To think about the lessons that you try to teach your kids. I want you to think about when you were growing up. Do you remember things that your parents tried to teach you? They're trying to teach you lessons, trying to get you to learn things that they knew would be important for you as you grow up. You guys remember those things? I I remember those things. There's things that your parents would try to tell you. And they would tell you this is very important. You need to learn this. And then you're like, internally you're like, yeah, whatever. You might comply, but you would reluctantly comply with what they're trying to tell you. And then all of a sudden, something magical happens when you turn 21 or when you move out the house and you no longer have the resources that your parents are providing or they weren't paying the rent or the mortgage for the house that you were living in. But now you have your own job and you got to pay your own bills and you got to pay your own car note and your own car insurance and you got to buy your own groceries. And, And then you start thinking, wait a minute, those lessons that my parents tried to teach me I think I got to learn them again because I wasn't listening the first time. And I think this is our tendency. The point of every lesson that God wants to teach us and the point of every lesson our parents are trying to teach us is for transformation so that we would become better, so that we would become stronger, so that we would become all that God's designed us to be. And that's the point of the lessons that God 
wants to teach us is that he is after inward transformation. Every lesson that God wants to teach us is centered on our heart. And it's kind of like the nation of Israel. You study the history of the nation of Israel, and, and this is really their pattern, is that they didn't learn their lessons. And you think about their, their journeys throughout the wilderness for 40 years. God's trying to get to their heart, trying to teach them lessons. They, they were continually hard-hearted and continually um, not grateful, and they complained, and they didn't learn. And, and, and I just pray that during this time that we would not miss what God wants to teach us. That we would learn everything he wants to teach us. And, and what I know is true is that, as I said, that the lessons are centered on our heart. It's centered on internal change. And this is at the core of what Christianity is all about. The core of Christianity is not outward conformity to a set of regulations and rules. That's religion. That is a religious experience. A religious experience is outward conformity to a set of rules and regulations and that you you make yourself do something versus having internal motivation for the change christianity is all about internal transformation not external manipulation god is after our heart and that is the core of christianity and this is what paul is getting at here in colossians this is what we've been talking about for the last six seven weeks in colossians is that it is all about the sufficiency of christ in all things it is about his work in our heart and paul is addressing it again and now he gets very specific in these areas these false teachers were coming in and they were pointing away from christ they were saying things about christ that were not true they were saying things about christ that he was not god that he did not really when he came in the flesh that he was really not god and so paul addresses that in colossians chapter one he says that that jesus is the image of the invisible god that when you saw jesus you saw god that he was preeminent that he was highly exalted he was the creator of all things. So Paul's dealing with these attacks on the deity of Christ. And, and, then, and then now he's going to specifically deal with some things that the false teachers were saying that the believers at Colossae had to do to be more spiritual. First of all, to be right with God and then to be at a higher spiritual plane. And, it's all, and all of those things are an attack on the reality of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is about inward transformation. That will ultimately produce life transformation. But the false teachers were getting it backwards. And they were pointing people away from Christ. And so we're going to go to the text here. We're going to look at some very specific things that Paul is having to confront. More specific than what we've really dealt with in, in the first part of this, of this letter. So let's go to the text. Colossians 2. I'm going to read verses 16 through 23. And let's see if we can unpack it and see how it applies to our life. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God." If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? Why do you do that? 
These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value, Paul is saying, in changing your heart. And this is the text, some very interesting sections there, having to do with dietary laws of the Jews, having to do with festivals and feasts and new moons, and having to do with ideas about worship of angels and asceticism. We'll explain what, 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 what that is, and having to do with going on about visions and dreams and visions. So these false teachers were coming in with these very specific things into the church and telling the church at Colossae, which would have been Jewish Christians, that they needed to revert back to Judaism in these very practical ways. Go back to the law in the Old Testament and observe these customs and traditions. And then they were also saying that there are some extra biblical things that you needed to do to become more spiritual. And Paul addresses it head on here. So what is Paul trying to say when he's saying, when he's saying these are not emphases that are important in the life of the Christian. These are things that point away from Christ. What is the Lord saying to us today? How does this apply to us? So here's the first thing that I want to tell us. Here's what I think Paul is trying to say. Here's what the Lord is trying to say to us is that we can't place our trust in shadows. We can't place our trust in shadows. Look back at the text. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one judge you and say that you are are right with God or not right with God based upon food and drink or with regard to a festival, a feast, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. He says this, these things are but a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when you think about a shadow, what's Paul trying to to illustrate here? When you think about a shadow, what does a shadow represent? It represents a person. It represents something whether it's a person or an object, that is, the object is the substance, the shadow is, is a reflection of the substance. And this is what he's trying to say to the church at Colossae, trying to say to the Christians that are being bombarded by false teaching from these false teachers, these things that these false teachers are saying about the observance of festivals and feast days of, of Judaism and, and food regulations, these are but shadows that ultimately point to Christ. The substance, the heart of all of those things in the Old Testament pointed to the reality that the Messiah was coming. They pointed to Christ. The false teachers in Colossae were trying to convince the church that they still needed to keep the Jewish ceremonial customs. If you look in Leviticus chapter 11, you had the dietary laws in Leviticus 11. And I'm not going to go through chapter 11 in Leviticus. Some very laborious things to read through there, but What's the heart? What, were the, what was the heart of the dietary laws in Leviticus? Why did God establish that for the nation of Israel? We established it for the nation of Israel to set them apart from other nations. So that they would be a unique people that would be set apart, that would be unlike any nation around the world. And they were set apart as God's people because God knew that if the nation of Israel would intermingle, even if, even if through the means of food and drink, and they would intermingle with foreign nations that their life would become eventually corrupted. They were inter, that they would intermarry and they would socialize and fellowship and intermarry and then eventually they would go after false gods. And we see that's the pattern of the nation of Israel. And this is why these dietary laws are there. But what is the point? What is that? That's, that's a shadow of what is to come. 
is that we would be set apart unto God. That, that, that as Christ would come and he would become the sacrifice once for all for the sins of, of all that was, all that would place their faith in, in him is that we would be set apart unto Christ. That we would be his one true possession. That, we, that he would be our one true God. That we would have no other gods before us. And so this was the point of the dietary laws. But scripture tells us. Look at Acts chapter 10. Scripture tells us that these dietary laws that are revealed in the Old Testament. Are not for us as new covenant Christians. Those are part of the old covenant. Look at Acts chapter 10. God had to get a hold of Peter. Who was a Jew. Who was trying to. He eventually was trying to get Jewish Christians, as we see in Colossians here, to adopt Jewish traditions and customs. And, and God had to give Peter a vision. Look at Acts 10. It says, in it, this vision that Peter had, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again the second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do you see what happened there? God specifically spoke to Peter and said, Peter, I'm giving you this vision of these unclean animals that you would typically call unclean that you would not eat. And God is telling Peter, he's saying, rise, kill and eat. And Peter says, I would never eat that. He says, don't call what is clean to me unclean. And ultimately, the picture of that is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were to be welcomed in to the faith. But it also gives us the picture that we don't have to submit to the dietary laws as new covenant Christians. And so now let's look over at the feast days. And so it says that, that, these, that, that they're trying to place regulations on the church at Colossae with food and drink. But now they're trying to, place, trying to tell them they have to keep the feast days of the old covenant. So what, what were the festivals, the feast days? You had the feast of Passover, which would commemorate whenever the death angel went over uh, and, and, and killed the firstborn of the, of, the, of the children of Egypt and the nation of Israel was protected so they would celebrate the Feast of Passover. The Feast of Weeks, which is the celebration of the Torah, the giving of the law, which came seven weeks after the Passover. You had the Feast of Booths or it's called the Feast of, Ta- of Tabernacles. And this is a celebration, a commemoration of God's protection of the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Then you have Hanukkah, or it's called the Feast of Lights. And this celebrates the dedication of the temple. And then he said also the new moon. He said that the the false teachers are trying to get you to sacrifice when there's a a new moon. And so this idea of of a new moon was that sacrifices were made on the first day of the month. So these false teachers were coming in and telling the church at Colossae, you still have to observe these feast days even as Christians. And one in particular... The observance of Sabbath, of the Sabbath day, is one that they were trying to say they had to observe. And this is even one today that is carried over into a lot of people in our world today where Christians believe that they have to observe the Sabbath and that's the only day that is the day to worship, which should be considered Saturday. And so the Sabbath day, let's go back and let's explain this. The Sabbath day was assigned to Israel of the Old Covenant. Look at Exodus chapter 31. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generation as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth. And on the seventh day he rested and refreshed. So the Sabbath day is set apart as a sign for the nation of Israel. As a sign of their covenant between them 
and God. But there's nowhere in the New Testament where the believer of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant is commanded to observe the Sabbath in the same way as a nation of Israel. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts and you see the church's birth in the book of Acts, you get to a section in Acts chapter 20 where Paul's preaching a sermon, preaching a message, and he preaches so long that a child falls out of the window and dies and Paul has to raise him up. But look at what it says in Acts 20 before Paul begins to preach. Acts 20 verse 7. And on the first day of the week, which is what day? Sunday. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together and to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Aren't you glad I don't preach that long? Aren't you glad that I don't preach so long that you all fall asleep? Not maybe you do fall asleep. Maybe you're falling asleep right now, because I'm talking about feast days and Sabbaths and, 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 and dietary laws. But what's the point in all of this? The point in all of this is that all of these areas, food and drink regulations, observances of feast days and new moon sacrifices and the Sabbath day, all of these point to a greater reality. They point to the coming of a new covenant reality in Christ. And the false teachers were trying to come in and pollute that message. They were bringing a message of rules and regulations. There's there's a... There's an account in the Gospels in John chapter 5 where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, who were keepers of the law, they were, they were incensed. They were, they were overcome with indignation towards Jesus because a part of observing the Sabbath was to do no work on the Sabbath. And so for them, if someone was healed on the Sabbath, then that was a form of work. And so they were mad at Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. And he makes a great point, the point that Paul is trying to make here in Colossians for you and I here today. This is what he says, John chapter 5. He's Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. You search the scriptures, speaking of the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Listen to that. And it is they, the scriptures... That bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's the point. This is the point. Jesus makes the point that Paul is making in Colossians. That he's looking at religious legalists in the Pharisees and religious Jews. And he's telling them, you're mad at me for breaking the Sabbath. But you're missing the whole point of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. You're missing the whole point that you think that in these observances, these legalistic observances of these feast days and these customs and these dietary laws, that in them is where you have life. And you're missing the whole point. They all point to me and yet you refuse to come to me so that you can have life again a shadow has no reality the reality is what makes the shadow and this is what Jesus is trying to say and this is what Paul is saying to the church at Colossae don't let false teachers come in and try to tell you that it is through those forms of religious legalism that you're going to be made right before God that's not how man is justified by religious legalism man is justified by faith in Christ alone through inward transformation you know there's a section in Romans chapter 14 that I think gives us the comprehensive view on days and on food on somebody observing a day over another day and over somebody observing something about food uh, and drink and somebody not observing that. This is the comprehensive new covenant view that I think speaks to us. Listen to this in Romans 14. Accept 
what other, accept other believers who are weak in faith. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. But another believer with a sensitive conscience will eat only vegetables. And here's what I would tell you. Quit judging me about not eating seafood. Just joking. Those who feel free to eat anything must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do. For God has accepted them. Who are you to condemn someone who is, who, who are you to, to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or fall. And with the Lord's help, they will stand and receive his approval. In the same way, some, some think one day is more holy than the other. While others think every day is alike. You should each be fully convinced that what, whichever day you choose is, 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 is acceptable. Those who worship the Lord on a special day do it to honor him. Those who eat any kind of food do so to honor the Lord since they give thanks to God before eating. And those who refuse to eat certain foods also want to please the Lord and give thanks to God. They both want to. For we don't live for ourselves. Here's the point. We don't live for ourselves and we don't die for ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. And if we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. The point is this, is that if there's a weaker believer who, because of previous traditions and customs, they believe that, 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 that eating a certain type of food, is, 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 it, it, will, it will hurt their conscience. The mature believer who understands the realities of the new covenant, they shouldn't condemn that person and say that they, that they should not be walking in that yet. They should allow them to grow into the revelation of the new covenant. That we have mercy and grace with each other in the way in which we grow into our new covenant realities of God's transformation that starts in the heart. So here's the point. We will always face the temptation to place our trust in the wrong things. This is what we will always face. The temptation to place our trust in the wrong things. And this is what the church of Colossae was being tempted with. We can't place our trust in shadows in external realities, in legalistic conformity for our right standing before God. We must place our faith and our trust in our justification before God in what God has established, which is the finished work of the cross. Not in rules and regulations and feast days and ceremonies and dietary laws. You know, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in very clear ways that they continually missed the point they missed the point of the law. The law was to set them apart as holy unto God so that, that God would have their heart. It wasn't so that they could live by the law so that they, that was the means of their justification. It was so that the God would have their heart. But God didn't have their heart. Many of them, God didn't have their heart. They were hypocrites. On the outside, they would do what looked right, but inwardly, They were full of dead men's bones. Inwardly, they were hypocrites. And Jesus continually pointed out that reality as you read through the Gospels. And it really culminates in one section. It's called the woe of the Pharisees in Matthew 23. I want to read the culmination of that. You go through their seven woes and he calls them out. He says, you are whitewashed tombs. You are hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You do all of these things to look spiritual on the outside thinking that you have life in that. But you're a hypocrite because inwardly your heart is not mine. And it culminates with this. Matthew 23, 37 and 38. Jesus declares to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
The city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. What is he saying? He's saying saying to the nation of Israel. He's saying to the scribes and the Pharisees who he's just rebuked. He's telling them I've I've longed to bring you to myself in relationship. But you did not want that relationship. You wanted to live according to your legalistic observances of the law and the customs and the dietary laws, thinking that you had life in those, but you've missed me. I have longed to bring you to myself, but you were not willing. And so as as a result, your house is left to you desolate. You are empty. It's the end of legalism is emptiness. God is after the heart of man, not his legalistic obedience. So Paul's point is simple. Genuine spirituality does not consist of simply keeping external regulations, but in the internal transformation that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the point. That's the lesson. I don't want us to miss the lesson during this time that God is after our heart. It's the same lesson, different context. Paul is talking to the church at Colossae and saying that these legalistic traditions and customs of the Jews are trying to be brought back to the, trying to be brought into the new covenant. And that's not what you are required to walk in if you are a new covenant Christian. And it's Paul's pointing to the internal realities, but it's the same lesson for us here today that God wants our heart. He's after our heart. Have you learned your lesson today in the middle of this time? We can't put our trust in shadows. We have to allow the Lord to do his work in our heart. Now, Paul shifts the focus here, and we're going to shift with him. He shifts the focus from legalistic observances of the Old Testament regulations to extra-biblical experiences that point away from Christ. So now he's saying that there's been these, these Old Testament, Old Covenant regulations that were established by God that they've been trying to still observe in the New Covenant, but now it's moving away from Scripture. Now there's these extra-biblical experiences that these false teachers are saying you must have to be spiritual. And so here's the second thing that we see here that we need to learn is that we can't shift our focus from the head. And this is what the text says. Paul continues, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, and going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through his joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. Paul is saying three areas, asceticism. I'll explain what that means. Worship of angels and going on about visions. He's saying these three things These false teachers are coming in and saying, you need to focus on these things, and this is what's going to make you spiritual, instead of clinging to the head. Well, who's the head? It's Christ. And if we cling to the head, what happens? It says that we're going to grow. The whole body is nourished and knit together. The joints and the ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. False teachers are saying, you want to grow? You want to become really spiritual? You need to walk in asceticism. You need to worship angels, and you you need to be enamored with visions. So very interesting sections here. So let's, let's explain this. So what, what, is it, what is asceticism? Asceticism is self-abasement. Asceticism is self-denial, but the purpose of asceticism and self, self-denial, self-abasement, it's for the demonstration of your devotion to the Lord. It's that you want to, you want to d- deny yourself of certain physical things 
for the purpose of demonstrating to others that you're spiritual. And this is what the false teachers were coming in and saying. Is that you need to demonstrate on the outside how spiritual you really are. You need to, you need to abase yourself. You need to, de- to deny your flesh things that you would normally want so as a, as a means to demonstrate to others that you're right before God. That you are really spiritual. And often, what does this lead to? It leads to, it leads to self-dependency. It leads to pride. And it leads to false humility. And Jesus hits this asceticism, this self-abasement, this idea that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restrain myself physically from things so that I can show people that I'm spiritual. He hits his head on in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What is Jesus saying there in the first two verses? He's saying, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others. Your self-abasement, your, your restraining of your flesh. Your li- be, beware of practicing it to be seen by others. You get your reward from them, not from your heaven. Not, not from your heavenly father. Let's go back to the text, verses 5 through 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, do what? Go to your room. Shut the door. Pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And lastly, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, their self-abasement, their self-deprivation. They're making themselves look gloomy when they're fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites. Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, meaning freshen up your head, your face. Wash your hair, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. That's what asceticism is, and the false teachers were coming in and saying, you need to focus on these things to prove your righteousness and your growth before the Lord. And what does Jesus say? Go hide when you fast. Don't let anybody see it. When you pray, go in your closet, shut the door. When you give, don't shout it on the rooftops how, how, how much you've given so you can be seen by others. The second thing that the false teachers were focusing on was the worship of angels. And throughout history, men and women have sought to elevate angels. This is not uncommon. This was common during that day. It's common even today that people want to seek after experiences with angels. I mean, I've heard it growing up throughout my years growing up. That people say, I had this encounter with this angel, and, and, and I saw a, a vision of an angel, and I had this, in, this, this experience, and, and if, if, you could be, if you would be spiritual, you get into the secret place, then you could have this encounter with angels. And I just want to tell you that God forbids that type of interaction, that type of focus on angels. He forbids the worship, the veneration, the exalting of angels above God. Scripture clearly forbids it. Look what Jesus says in Matthew 4. Verse 10, Jesus is referencing the giving of the Ten Commandments, and he references the first commandment, the, the commandment. Jesus said to them, be gone, said to Satan, be gone, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Him only. 
shall you serve. Clear declaration that we are only to worship God and him alone. We're not to lift up angels higher or on the same level as God. Isaiah 6, angels worship before God. You see a vision that Isaiah has, and he, and he worships. The angels fall down and worship God. Revelation 5, angels worship God. What do the, what do the angels say? What do the angels say in, 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 in Revelation 5? They say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. They fall down and they worship God. They're not intended to be worshipped. They are created beings like you and I. And the most clear declaration of the false teaching of a worship of the worship of angels or the, the veneration, the lifting up of angels is in Revelation 19, 9 through 10. John is tempted to worship an angel. Listen to this. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet, the feet of the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It's a clear declaration right there. That angels are fellow servants. They are created beings. They are ministering servants of God. Just as we as children of God are ministering servants of God. They are never to be worshipped. Clear declaration right there. And so now this third area. Extra biblical experiences that the false teachers were coming in. And this is one that is challenging for us to listen to. But it is a reality that Paul brings out here. Paul is warning the church about false teachers that will come in and they're going to want to go into detail about visions that they've had to lead the church away, to point them away from the gospel, away from Christ, and to point them to these glorious details of their visions, of what they've seen. And how often do we hear that here today? You get people here today and they have a vision of heaven. They say they went to heaven or they say they went to hell and they're going to write a book about it, right? I've been to heaven, 70 seconds in heaven or 60 seconds in hell, and they write books and they sell millions of copies about these visions, supposed visions that they, that they have. Paul warns in Colossians right here. He warns the church at Colossae to be careful about people who go on about visions because they're going on about things that are subjective and not objective. They're going on about things that they're the only ones that can that can prove whether it happened or it didn't happen. Be careful about following people who say, follow me because I had this vision. Listen to me because, because I had this vision. And so this is what I, I, I would tell us, is that we need to be very careful of that. Paul warned us of that. This practice is common today. People will say, God gave me a vision. This is what you need to do. God gave me a vision and this is what I need to do. Paul clearly warns against being led astray by this. So as a way of illustrating the danger of following people and their visions, their supposed visions from God, I'm going to read two visions. I'm not going to tell you who the people are. I'm going to read a vision from two famous men. I want to read these words from this vision. And after I read both visions from two famous men, I'm going to tell you who these men are. You're going to recognize one of them as I read their vision. You won't recognize the other one unless... Unless you've studied it. So here's the first vision this man had. Hear the words of this vision. Having looked around me and finding myself alone, I kneeled and began to offer up the desires of my heart to God. I had scarcely done so when immediately I was seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me. And had such an astonishing influence over me as to bind my tongue so that I could not speak. 
Just at this moment of great alarm, I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, greater than the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. It no sooner appeared than I found myself delivered from the enemy which held me bound. When the light rested upon me, I saw two persons whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. Wow. One of them spoke to me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, this is my beloved son, hear him. Wow. Sounds like something that we hear today, doesn't it? Sounds like the very same language that maybe somebody would say, they saw a great light, they heard a voice, and they saw a vision and sends very clear things that we would say that would be common for us to hear somebody would experience. Here's the second man, famous man that had a vision. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. That experience is worth boasting about. But I'm not going to do it. I will boast only about my weaknesses. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they see in my life or hear in my message, even though I have received such great revelations from God. Do you know who the second one is? If you could talk to me through the screen, I know some of you, if you were here right now, you would say the Apostle Paul. But the question is, you know who the first one is? Who's the first one? The first one is 14-year-old Joseph Smith. The first one is 14-year-old Joseph Smith. Do you know who Joseph Smith is? Joseph Smith is the founder of Mormonism. Joseph Smith, if you go and you look up Joseph Smith's visions, and you go to the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints website, which is where I went and copied that directly from their website, I read for a half hour, his visions. I just picked a few portions of his visions. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And ultimately, do you know why Joseph Smith went and sought the Lord? Is this is what he said. He said, the Presbyterians, I don't think the Presbyterians are right. And I don't think the Methodists are right. And I don't think the Baptists are right. Who is right? And he went to James, where the Bible says in James, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This is Joseph Smith's words. And I went before the Lord and I sought the Lord. He said, God, give me wisdom. Which religion is right? And he goes on after this vision, and the man that said, listen to, the figure that said, listen to him, supposedly pointed to Jesus, that figure looked at him and said, none are right, they're all wrong. And then later on, he had other visions where he was told that that he was going to have the one right religion. Now, I know this is an extreme example, but this is exactly what can happen and what does happen when people chase Visions. And I think it's so very important that you understand that the Apostle Paul had just amount, had, had the same type of significant experience. And what, what Joseph Smith experienced, I believe, was not from heaven, was, was from hell. What Paul experienced, you notice what he said? Look, look what he said. He said, I'm not even going to talk about it. You, do, do, do you want to know a clue? You know a clue about when somebody has the right heart and attitude about a supposed vision. If they're eager to tell you, and you got to hear this revelation I got from God, to 
it's a red flag. What the, what the apostle Paul saw the third heavens, whatever that looks like, went to paradise. What did he say? He said, I'm not going to say. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to go into details about it. Second Corinthians 12 Look what Paul said. Let's go back to it. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling you the truth. But I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit or think that I'm extra spiritual or closer to God because of this vision that I've had. And you know how I want to be judged? He says, judge me by my life and by my message. Judge me by my spiritual maturity and the, and the reality that I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't think I'm spiritual because I say I've seen this vision, and I've seen angels, and I've heard voices. No. Yeah, I've seen it, but I'm not going to talk about it because I don't want you to place your faith in that reality. I want you to place your faith in the message of Jesus Christ, and that is the reality of what is so important for us here today, that our growth doesn't come from legalistic observances of regulations and, and food and dietary laws. Our growth doesn't come from extra biblical experiences that we may have. And look, can God give you a vision? We read in Acts 10, God gave Peter a vision, and it was a genuine vision. Yes, God can give a vision, but that vision is for you. That vision is not for you to declare it as a word from God for other people. That vision is for you. And this is a big difference because the purpose of the gospel is Jesus Christ and not our personal experiences and, 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 and whether or not we think we're spiritual and greater in spirituality than someone else because of what we experience. It, that All those things point away from Christ being sufficient. Paul wanted the church to judge him based upon the observations of his ministry, not his visions. Many people want to be judged by their supposed connection to the deeper things of God. I don't want you to know this. Hear me. This is so important for you to understand this. I am no closer. I have no, I am no closer to God than you can have the potential of being. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't put me on a higher plane than you. Just because I am set apart to teach God's word and explain scripture to you doesn't mean that I am closer to God than what you can be. I am not any greater. And no spiritual leader is even, is, is greater. And just because they tell you they have visions and dreams, and they hear a word from heaven, doesn't mean that they're any closer. And this is the warning that Paul gave to the church at Colossae. So here's what I'll tell you. If someone comes to you and says, I've got got a vision that you need to listen to. You need to read the book I wrote about it. You need to come to this conference, and I'll tell you about it. Here's what I'll tell you. Run. Run. Say no thank you. I've got the only revelation I need. It's right here. It's God's word. Asceticism, worship of angels, details about visions, just three areas that many people are pointed away from Christ being all that they need. So how are we going to grow into Christ's likeness? How are we going to mature in our faith? Look back at the text. Let's go back to it. And not holding fast to the head. So we're, we're, we're holding fast to other things. How are we going to grow? We're going to grow by holding fast to Christ. 
from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together and it grows with the growth that is from God. How are we going to grow into greater Christ-likeness? Through holding fast to Christ. Not holding fast to legalism. Not holding fast to extra-biblical experiences that we think are going to make us grow closer to God. We're going to grow closer to Christ by holding on to Christ. By going deeper into his word. By going deeper into him. Holding fast to Christ. So what's Paul's ultimate point as we wrap this up here this morning? Paul's ultimate point is this, and it's my final point, is that Christ alone is enough. Christ alone is enough. We can't place our trust in the shadows. We have to hold on to the head, which is Christ. He must be the center of all things. Why? Because Christ alone is enough in our spiritual life. The Apostle Peter, he confirms this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you hear that? Christ's divine power has granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness. What is he saying there? That in Christ we have everything that we need to be godly. In Christ we have everything that we need to live the Christian life. And what is it through? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Christ alone is enough for our salvation. Christ alone is enough for our sanctification, for our spiritual growth. This is the lesson that I believe we can't miss during this time. That Christ alone is enough for us, my brothers, my sisters. Christ alone is enough. He is all that we need. I don't need the things I thought I needed. Are you learning that lesson today? Are you learning it during this season? I I don't need all the things that I thought I needed. Christ alone is enough. The simple life. Right priorities. Christ-centered thinking and living. This is the lesson This is what Paul was teaching the church at Colossae. And to me, this is the lesson that God is teaching us during this pandemic. That he alone is enough. And this is what was laid on my heart in in the beginning of this pandemic. When the regulations started coming down, this was pressed into my heart. I said, Lord, what do I need to focus on? And I just kept thinking about Christ. our, Our people, the church needs to see Christ. Christ is the center. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all we need. Christ is all we need. And this is what's happening. We're realizing that we don't need the houses we thought we needed. We don't need the stuff we thought we needed. We don't need all the extra frivolous things that we thought we needed. Christ alone is enough. How easily do we drift, though? How easily do we get off the mark? You know, that's our pattern. That's our pattern as humans is to, is to drift, is to get off the mark. And, you know, one day we're going to come back to normal things that we used to do. And what I pray is, is that I would not drift. And what I pray for you is that you would not drift. I pray that you would not get off the mark. I pray that you would not get off the mark, that you would not come back to some normal things in your life that you used to do. And it would cause you to drift back into a place of complacency. This is the lesson. Don't, we can't overcomplicate it. God, God, God doesn't make his message complicated. It is a simple gospel. It is all about Christ. It's always been about Christ. It is about Christ. It will always be about Christ. That is the point. In church, when we come back, 
It's about Christ alone. When we return to our jobs, to our school, when schools open up, to our sporting events, to our dinner parties, to our birthday parties. We quit having drive through birthday parties. We return to eating out normally, going to the movies. When we return, when we return to this building, when we return to this building, let's not return the same. Let's not return the same. Let's have such a clear focus of Christ that everything else pales in comparison. Do you hear me here today? Let's come back. I, 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 want us to, I, want, I want to come back. And I want you to come back to this building with a renewed sense of a vision of Christ. That he has, he has transformed your thinking, reprioritized your life. That's what we want. That's what we need. Let's come back with changed hearts, changed priorities, and a renewed passion for Christ. And a renewed passion for gospel ministry. You know, in our world today, the world is seeing very clearly that life can be taken from them like that. Life can be changed like that. We all know it, but what do we do with our everyday life? What do we do with our busyness? Listen, this is what we do with our business. We drown out the realities of life. You drown that out with our busyness, with our regular schedules. But what, is, what happens when the brakes are put onto our regular schedules? then the reality of life and death comes right in front of the view of humanity. And they have to think deeply. And so we must be ready for gospel ministry when we return to this building, when we return to our jobs, when we go back to our regular routines, to be willing to say, Lord, use me to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the lesson. As we end this series, all things held together, as we end this season of live streaming, I believe we're almost at the end here. This is what I want to press on your hearts. That we have to have Christ. He must be the center. And I want to end with John 15, 1 through 5. This is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you. Unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the lesson. That's the lesson we must learn today. God, I thank you for this truth. That apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Lord, I pray that we would not lose our focus. I pray, Lord, that we would not get sidetracked by unnecessary things. Just as the church at Colossae was being tempted to focus on shadows, and they were being tempted to look away from the head for spiritual growth. God, I pray that in our context today that we would not do the same thing, that we would focus on you, the true source of life, true source of salvation and life and spiritual growth. God, that we would come through this time with a greater understanding of John fifteen five, that apart from Jesus, we can do 
nothing. Lord, press it into my heart in a greater way. And press it into the heart of your people in a greater way. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you. And I will see you. You'll see me um, for Mother's Day next week. God bless you.